0: Hello, this is Guardian Daily. It's Wednesday, October the 7th, and I'm Michael White at the Conservative Party conference in Manchester, where George Osborne has announced an assault on public sector pay and everyone's pension retirement age to help balance Britain's books. The next Conservative government is determined
1: to leave public services and society stronger than it finds them. Put bluntly, Labour created this mess And we Conservatives are going to have to sort
2: it out. And I'm John Dennis with the rest of the news from The Guardian's London studio. Stolen treasure from Afghanistan goes on display at Kabul's National Museum.
3: These items which were recovered by customs officials at Heathrow Airport were more recently looted from unsecured archaeological sites um, around the country and then shipped to London for, for sale to private collectors.
2: And Hilary Mantel wins the Man Booker Prize for fiction for Wolf Hall, her novel about Henry VIII's advisor, Thomas Cromwell.
4: At 650 pages, you're only a third of the way through because there's two volumes to come and it is a kind of thought of, oh, right, well, I'm not sure if I'm up for the whole ride or not.
2: First, the news and a flick through the papers.
5: Cyanide and raw sewage have been leaked into the River Trent in Staffordshire. Thousands of fish have died and people are being warned to stay away from a 30-mile stretch of the river near Stoke. The Environment Agency says it's using other chemicals to neutralise the cyanide, which has stopped a water treatment plant from working. It's not yet known where the poisonous pollution came from. Friends of the Earth say Britain's still wasting millions of pounds a year throwing away rubbish that could be recycled. The campaign group estimates 24 million tonnes a year of recyclable materials such as plastics and aluminium are going to landfill dumps. At the Conservative Party conference in Manchester, the legal affairs spokesman Dominic Grieve says he wants police to be able to warn communities of dangerous criminals living in their midst. In a speech today, Mr Grieve says that at present criminals have a right to privacy. The Justice Secretary Jack Straw insists police already do have the powers to make announcements about wanted criminals. There's another series of local postal strikes around the country starting today. The 24-hour strikes will be ranging from Kilmarnock in Scotland to London and Bristol in southern England. The Communication Workers' Union will announce the result of its ballot on a national strike tomorrow. Hilary Mantles won the Man Booker Prize for fiction for her novel Wolf Hall. This was the successful writer's first time on the Booker shortlist, but she was the bookie's favourite to win the £50,000 prize. She told the audience at the prize giving that she was flying through the air. And the 60s singer Donovan has been named a musical icon in the British Musical Industry Awards. The folk singer had 12 top 40 hits such as Mellow Yellow and Jennifer Juniper, which the industry said had transformed music. George Osborne, the Tory shadow chancellor, takes the lead on most front pages this morning. The Mail and our paper choose a similar headline about Osborne's age of austerity. The Times says the Tories cut to the chase, the Financial Times, that Osborne targets £7 billion of cuts and the Telegraph quotes him saying, we're all in this together. The paper argues that these will be the biggest spending cuts for 30 years, while we report that there will be a public pay freeze and tax credits slashed, as Tories promise honesty. But the Mail worries that with these deep cuts, public pay freeze and squeeze on middle class benefits will the gamble cost them votes The Mirror also has a sting in the tail for the Tories, it prints a front page picture of David Cameron drinking what the paper claims is a £140 a bottle champagne with the caption fizzy rascal it believes that he has flouted the conference ban on champagne set by the party chairman so as not to alienate voters otherwise that paper is the only one to get a photo of Booker winner Hillary Mantle onto its front page but we also tell the story of another winner, a Chinese Briton called Quen Quao who wins This year's Nobel Prize for Physics. The 75 year old was the first person to think up sending digital information down glass fibre wires. The headline reads And the Nobel winner is the bloke from Woolwich Polly, a South London institution not normally named as a centre of great academic success. He later went to the much more prestigious Imperial College. There's more news and support throughout the day on guardian.co.uk.
0: I'm Michael White in Manchester, where the headline for today's agenda is Mending Our Broken Society. We'll come back to that in a minute. But first, George Osborne has laid out his vision for the British economy and told delegates here that a Conservative government would freeze public sector pay, raise the age of the state pension age to 66 sooner than planned, and keep in place Labour's 50p tax bracket.
1: I want to talk very directly to the people at home. Conservatives have been straight with you today. A bigger state pension each year for all, paid for by an increase in the pension age of one year. A one-year public sector pay freeze that does not apply to the lowest paid in order to protect the jobs of 100,000 people working in frontline public services. Tackling Britain's debt crisis to stop higher interest rates and higher unemployment for all. These are the honest choices in the world in which we live, and we have made them today. And anyone who tells you these choices can be avoided is not telling you the truth. We are all in this together.
0: I've been joined to discuss the speech by the Guardian's head of business, Dan Roberts. But before we hear his analysis, here's the Guardian's political editor, Patrick Winter.
6: Well, I think the Conservatives have privately recognised that what they've announced is a big gamble. They've taken the, uh, the risk, the belief that the British public are willing to take some very tough medicine. They've seen the scale of the debt crisis the country's facing and there has to be a moment of collective self-sacrifice. And uh, what they've tried to do is pitch it as carefully as they can so that it's clear this is not just going to fall on the burdens of the poor, but that the rich will also have to suffer. So what they've set out is a big public sector pay freeze, but they will exclude the lowest paid. They're going to bring forward the point at which the pension ages uh, comes in and they're going to hit the middle class in terms of the tax credits they receive, including the child uh, baby bond so altogether that amounts to quite a lot of cuts it's not as much as that you might have uh, expected given the kind of tough rhetoric that Osborne used it probably takes a sixth of you a sixth of the way towards the halving of the public deficit that they've promised to do by 2013-14 but it nevertheless is a big big gamble and the polls are all over the place some polls show that the public are willing for all this other people show that the insists that the polls, all they show really is that they're very willing to see sacrifices as long as they don't hit them personally. So I don't think the Conservatives know whether this will really work or not, or whether there is this kind of mood out there for honesty, truth. Personally, I don't see any occasion since John Smith produced a very tax-raising budget in '92 that a political party's taken a gamble like this. Uh, They're head in the polls, and it's interesting that they're willing to do this. Um, But they at the same time had been saying for so long that the debt had to be addressed that this was the occasion when they really had to come out with some numbers uh, Labour's hit back saying that their their polling shows that they were really few foolish because Conservatives were sort of really foolish not to uh, withdraw the inheritance tax which helps about 3,000 of the richest families that was a very foolish thing to do and that the, the pension figures don't add up, that the welfare to work uh, numbers don't add up and that when you really examine some of what uh, the put out it starts to fall apart but there will now be pressure on Labour to say more which they'll have to do at the time of the pre-budget report in November that will be the moment when Labour will have to say in more detail than they have so far what they will do.
0: Patrick Winter there now Dan Roberts is with me what did you make of it Dan? Well I
7: thought that uh, we learned a little (coughs) bit more about uh, the Tories economic thinking at least there's not as many policies as I was expecting but we got this (coughs) curious sense of desperation to be austere and desperation to, to, to cut public finances that didn't wasn't really backed up by what they were saying about um, the state of the economy this this curious idea that if you don't fix the public finances immediately you're going to get a huge um, rise in interest rates which is is just uh, not what the city's saying
0: but Cameron and uh, Osborne have been peddling this line for months they've been saying unless we tackle the debt and have a plan immediately then uh, they'll lose uh, creditworthiness and standard and pause and all these people People will suddenly say, can't uh, invest in, in British government stock. Well, they're a bit right, aren't they? Even though everyone else thinks they're a bit premature because we've got to get uh, the economy growing again before we talk this stuff.
7: But I think timing in, in economics is everything, as it is in most things in life. And and being just <clears throat> and being a few months wrong or a few years wrong can be uh, a huge um, disaster if they were to cut off the, um, the stimulus that is keeping the, the economy afloat at the moment too early. Um, you could send the economy back into recession and
0: that's what Sam Britton and David Blanchflower and all these fancy people all say don't do it too soon let the debt will take care of itself later. And I was expecting
7: them to kind of ease those concerns and say oh no we understand that we're not going to do it for He
0: did while. slightly but, well, he, he had a sentence where he said of course timing matters and we'd consult the Bank of England he yes. had a little sentence in there and you thought oh that's a retreat. Yes
7: I suppose it just it seems a convenient way of justifying the natural <coughs> tendencies which is just to shrink the state it's it, um, and it's an argument that had a lot more resonance a few months back when there was a severe risk of a run on the pound and a severe risk that we wouldn't be able to sell sell gilts and that um, the Bank of England would have to push up rates. None of that has happened and actually recently Britain's been taken off the credit watch that the the credit rating agencies put put us on on, and actually it's been slightly easier to sell gilts so it's it's ringing less true. Some
0: people say that that's because uh, the money markets have factored in a Tory victory already and know it'll be all right on the night.
7: Well, I think that that's certainly true, that Stanton & Poor's, which um, put out this recent um, change, <clears> said that both parties were now talking um, more sense about public deficits. And I think that there is a remarkable degree of uh, consensus that, that the long-run deficits needs the structural deficit needs to come down.
0: Dan Roberts. So, no new tax cuts, calls for the rich to pay their way, a warning to the city. All that can't have gone down too well in the hall. Or can it? Brilliant. Fantastic. Fantastic. You liked it too.
8: Uh, absolutely. Couldn't what are you do you like better.
0: especially about it?
8: Everything. Are you, are, you pen- are, you,
0: are you a pensioner? I am. But you're not going to be affected by the. No, 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 no. no nor am I. What did we think of that? Hello. What did you think of that?
8: I thought it was
9: absolutely excellent. Seems what did you like about it? Well, I think that he told the truth, which was just what we didn't hear Sorry, last week from the uh, mm. Labour conference. And what,
0: what particular things? I mean, there's quite a lot in there.
9: At last, somebody's doing something about the deficit.
0: So you encourage encouraged. Good effort by George Osborne. Oh, absolutely superb. What did you think of the speech? I thought it was very positive.
1: You know, there could have been... Uh, Uh, More emphasis on the fact that um, the well-off have got to keep on and even possibly increase their contribution. We are, as he says, all in it together.
0: Excuse me, young people, did you see his speech? You're looking cheerful. You must have done. Yes, absolutely. Very good. Very good. And what made you cheerful about it?
1: Um, Well, I have confidence in George Osborne and, um, well, I have more confidence in him than Alistair Darling to actually deliver what he says he will deliver.
8: Um, well, I actually thought the one thing that stood out to me was how George sort of set out the plans of how the Conservative Party was actually going to help the poorer people in society. And I think that's something that we really need to get across. He
0: put a lot of applause for that, Yes, didn't he it? did. He
8: really did. I was quite surprised, actually. Um, but I think it's brilliant that he's offered um, not to cut the 50p tax rate in the year that he's expecting civil servants to take a pay freeze, and especially for those that are earning the it was minimum. It a sort
0: of trade-off, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
8: Yeah. I think that's a really good idea, and I think people will appreciate that.
0: And you, sir, since we're all in this in this together, we ought to ask there are three of you here. That's an excellent way to put it. I'm the PPC for Angus, and indeed we are in all this together. What's the majority in Angus?
1: 1,600 that I need to overcome. It's an SMP seat, and yes, the people sir. in our both Montrose, forfir and Edsel want change, and George Osborne has laid out plans for change working together. Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland together.
0: It's a young man who took his opportunity to get a plug in, didn't he? Well done. Thank you. <laughs> a cautious welcome there from some very sober-minded delegates in Manchester. But back in London, John dennis has been testing the mood on the streets of islington yes that's right mike
2: i'm at king's cross station just a stone throw from the guardians hq in london i'm uh, just trying to find out what voters think of the conservatives plans to raise the retirement age i think it had to be done at some stage and i think they're quite brave actually to announce it now in advance of a general election would you be happy to carry on working until your, your late 60s? Uh, I'm not intending
9: to do, no.
5: <laughs> I don't think so. I think most people want to go 65 because
8: that's what they've expected.
2: I would be, personally. It doesn't worry me whatsoever, as long as I'm enjoying my job at the time.
6: Yeah, yeah. What about you? No, I'm not too bothered about it. Yeah. But um, more concerned about their plans to slash all the public sector funding, really, and kicking yeah. us all out of our jobs.
2: Would you be happy to work until you're 66? <laughs>
8: It would depend what the work was. Um, If I continue to get to do things that I find more fun than not working, then that would be lovely. But uh, if it was something I found grim and depressing, it would make me sad.
9: Probably when I come to retiring, there won't be a pension, so I'll have to carry on working
2: so you're not expecting to retire at 65 or anything?
9: I very much doubt it. I expect to probably have to carry on working until I reach the stage where I can't work
0: anymore.
10: I mean, my mother, she's going to turn 60 soon and I think for her age is a bit too tired, tiring for her to, you know, to be working at that age. But then again, she moans and she's like, you know, I've still got energy.
2: Would you be happy to carry on working into your late 60s?
10: Preferably, I would love to retire when I'm 40, if anything.
2: <laughs> so the question is, what do you think
11: of David Cameron's uh, plans to make people work until they're 66? The Tory government's naive in, in respect that people like my age have worked from leaving school at 15, so by 65 I'll have done 50 years, and he's wanting me to do an extra year. I mean, because of the financial crisis the banks put us in, I don't think the common people should have to pay for that by working an extra year in their lives. Thanks, John. Of all the buzzwords and
0: slogans tried out by the Conservatives in this period before the election campaign, the one that has resonated most, certainly in the tabloids, is the broken society. On this diagnosis, Britain's communities are full of families trapped in cycles of poverty, crime and various forms of addiction. Well, I'm joined now by The Guardian's columnist. Polly Toynbee, co-author of the book Unjust Rewards, which focused on the growing gap between the rich and poor in Britain. Polly, first of all, what do you make of that phrase, broken
10: society? Well, every society has broken bits, but I don't think most people in Britain feel they themselves their families are broken. You know, probably there's a deeply dysfunctional 2% down at the bottom of society, and we always focus on them. Whenever we talk about poverty, inequality, we zoom straight in on catastrophic families, on the worst estates, and people imagine there are many, many more of them than there really are. That's, you know, the Daily Mail picture of 15 children, all with different fathers and vast benefit payments.
0: But we do find that when we talk about broken society and dysfunctional society, uh, admittedly we've got uh, small core of families. Small core, even two percent, can cause an awful lot of trouble. In any case, it goes wider than this, doesn't it? Because all sorts of respectable families and people from respectable families go out and get drunk and unpleasant on a on a Friday night. Uh, you know, drive cars uninsured, do all nasty things, which don't appear to inflict our neighbours in Western Europe, in affluent Western Europe, in quite the same way.
10: I think that's true. We're unruly, uncouth and rather drunk and always have been. We could say it goes back to the Vikings. I don't know. I would say countries that are the most unequal always end up being the most raucous and most dysfunctional. You know, the bottom end of American society is even worse because they're even more unequal. When you look in Sweden, there's not much of that about because people live much more equal lives.
0: Uh, We agree that Britain is not broken, uh, but it's... Cracked at the edges.
10: I can't imagine a society except something completely terrifying that isn't a bit cracked, one has to remember that you don't want a society which has no crime no dysfunction, nobody who's different that's kind of Singapore under Lee Kuan Yew and it was not great so we have to be reasonably tolerant of a certain amount of chaos and you know, teenagers getting drunk and shouting in the streets, it's not the end of the world.
0: Do you think David Cameron and his team bringing young fresh brains to these problems have uh, got ideas which you as an old hand in these matters think, well that might be worth giving a try that might work
10: I think they're a bit wet around the years, really, and they're going... I mean, I think it's interesting because they you look at Ian Duncan Smith's operation, he's looked very hard and seriously at the nature of the problem. He sees what's gone wrong, he sees what works, but he always steps back when you say, yes, actually what works is very young child psychotherapy, uh, very good paediatricians, a lot of health visitors and help, and that costs a huge amount of money. And when you say that to him, he sort of sighs and says, yes, but I don't say anything about that because the Conservatives are going to cut, so... The answers are there if only the public would demand them.
0: Polly Toynbee there. Uh, one thing's becoming clearer through this week is that the Conservative Party is terrified of appearing divided. Grassroots members are taking care not to stray from the party line and... Apart from Boris Johnson and one or two others, there's been precious little mischief making on Europe either. Uh, last night, on the conference fringe, the highest-ranking Europhile still in the party, Ken Clark, did his best to avoid any banana skins placed by the Observer's Andrew Ronsley.
11: How does abolishing the Human Rights Act improve human rights? Uh, I don't think it does, particularly. Uh, it depends what you put in its place. I mean, what nobody has proposed. The, the, the key thing about human rights is the Convention on human rights. Nothing to do with the European Union. We signed it after the war, it was Winston Churchill, it was the aftermath of the war when it was actually produced by victorious British politicians to try to give some sort of framework to stop continental Europe relapsing into the nastiness, the extremism, the totalitarianism which had preceded the 1930s and we've always adhered to it, we still do, we're never going to repudiate it. So the, the Human Rights Act is tacked onto that, as it were. It determines where you hear the cases. And until we had the Human Rights Act, we had to go to Strasbourg, yeah. and now it's been incorporated in British law. Uh, now, it's controversial, and it could be improved. I think more people bring daft claims and excite the newspapers. The never win daft actions, you never hear that they've lost and it's been thrown out. It's like the person who sued somebody for being spilt by, by hot coffee, even in America I think she lost, uh, but it gets discredited by stupid claims more than by stupid decisions. And We've said we're going to revisit it, I think we said we're going to, we, we don't like the way it was brought into British law. Uh, we shouldn't exaggerate the effect it's going to have and we shouldn't, we shouldn't get so wild with rage when people we don't like start making stupid arguments on the basis their human rights are being impeded. They're, they may use that argument, but they're talking out the back of their hat, and the European Convention of Human Rights, as applied by a sensible judge, will stop them running this nonsense. Ken Clark there,
0: speaking to The Observer's Andrew Rawnsley. Well, it's a funny week everything's going pretty well for the Tories, that is to say the conference is disciplined, it's not falling out, it's avoiding uh, champagne photo opportunities for the uh, naughty photographers who hang around for that sort of thing. I believe David Cameron was caught at the spectator party but uh, it's mass drunken orgies which is what the tabloids would really like to find here and they haven't found them. The mood of the conference is disciplined, sober and not yet quite believing that after three election defeats it's really got a victory in in its sites I've hardly found anyone who'll admit that they expect to win the election, which, of course, everybody else expects them to, including, in his darkest moments, Gordon Brown.
2: Michael White at the Conservative Party conference in Manchester, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also on The Guardian's website, Patrick Barkham on the drought in central England, guardian.co.uk slash G2. We hear about a former guard at Guantanamo Bay who converted to Islam. He talks to Safraz Manzur at guardian.co.uk slash religion. And John Fordham, our jazz critic, looks back at 50 years of Ronnie Scott's club, guardian.co.uk slash Music. My name's John Dennis. Coming up in Guardian Daily, Chris Evans talks to us about taking over from Terry Wogan and his infamous run on Radio 1.
9: I honestly thought that all the bands were going to turn up with bottles of Jack Daniels and cans of tenants and and I couldn't believe it because the first band I actually saw, I won't name the name, but the lead singer had curlers in his hair. (laughs) That's how sort of illusory I was.
2: But first, Afghanistan has taken a small step towards rebuilding its rich cultural heritage. Five years ago, more than 2,000 looted antiquities were seized at Heathrow Airport by British customs officials. They were then investigated by experts at the British Museum. Well, now they've gone on display at Afghanistan's National Museum in Kabul. John Boone's been to have a look.
3: Well, it's a mixture of things, as you might expect, from uh, what is essentially recovered stolen goods. Um, It includes uh, miniature columns, uh, lots of uh, Bronze Age um, implements as well as some quite spectacular artifacts from the, uh, the so-called Ghaznian golden period in the of, of Afghanistan's history in the 10th to 12th centuries AD, um, including a, a very large um, bird-shaped incense burner, which really forms the centerpiece of the exhibition, which I, sh- I should say is not enormous. It's only in, in two rooms of the Kabul Museum, but by the standards of the museum, that's an awful lot because so much of its collections have been stolen and destroyed over the years.
2: It's a real tragedy, um, what happened to many of Afghanistan's antiquities during the Afghan civil war and then also by the Taliban. And the museum itself was in a a really vulnerable position, wasn't it?
3: Yes, it it couldn't have really been in in a worse position. It was on the edge of the city that was contested by the different Mujahideen groups trying to gain control. It was very much a front line. Um, and that meant that it was incredibly vulnerable um, and indeed its collections which at one stage were some of the most extraordinary um, c- collections of, of ancient artifacts to be found anywhere in the world because there is such a rich archaeological history in Afghanistan um, because of the, the sheer number of civilizations that have gone through this part of the world. Whilst efforts were made to move some of those um, items before the heavy fighting began. There was still artefacts in the museum when it was uh, blown up by a rocket in the uh, the early 90s, and then subsequently, when Taliban hardline Taliban uh, fighters uh, moved to try and expunge Afghanistan's pre-Islamic um, heritage and history in 2001, the the most extraordinary thing about this museum is is some of its very best stuff was indeed successfully. Hidden away by some very brave uh, museum staff, who ensured its, its, its gold hoard, the so-called Bactrian gold hoard, which is um, an, an extraordinary collection of of jewellery and, and and decoration, um, w- w- was hidden away in the presidential palace, and amazingly wasn't found until um, after the Taliban fell in 2001. But because it's so valuable, this stuff, it can't really be on display in Kabul. And instead, it's been touring around the world. Uh, It's just finished a run at the uh, New York Metropolitan Museum.
2: John Boone.
8: Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world.
2: Hilary Mantel's novel, Wolf Hall, has won the 2009 Booker Prize. It tells the story of the rise of Thomas Cromwell in Henry VIII's court. Well, giving their reaction to the Booker judge's decision are the editor of Guardian.co.uk slash books, Sarah Crown, John Crace, he of Digested Read fame,
8: and our literary editor, Claire Armitstead. I think it's just one of the most wonderful, exciting, interesting and innovative books um, that's come out in, in years I think really and I I couldn't have picked a better winner and so congratulations to the panel I'm really really pleased. John what do you think you're probably more salty are you? <laughs> slightly slightly <laughs> I mean it is a good book but I don't think
4: it's the best one on the short list I would have uh, my money or well, rather my thoughts would have been with A.S. Byatt I know it's a more traditional book and it's got its problems but I think there is actually a better story and a, a better structure in there.
5: Do we do we um, think it's all right to give this prize to a historical novel? There's been a, quite a lot of fuss about that, hasn't there, this year?
8: Well, that's been the big the big question that everyone's raised over the shortlist. This idea of these the novels being generally historical. And um, I've spoken to a couple of the authors on the shortlist about it, and they've come back with quite different views. And um, Hilary Mantel said herself when when we did an interview um, that she didn't really see the book in those terms. And you know, there was the traditional idea of historical fiction, which was the Jean Pleiades and the Anya Setons, and, and what she was doing was sort of slightly outside of that. Um, and Simon Moore, who came from from fairly far back in the odds to be the second favourite by the time the prize was actually announced, his book was also supposed to be historical fiction, but actually it was set during World War II, so he said, you know, this is his parents' generation and you can't really kind of be grouping those books together. Um, I think if the story's good enough... Um, why, why, why should there be any problem with setting something in the past? I don't think it detracts from the, the quality of the book at all. So no, I have no problem with it. John, do, do we really need more stuff about the Tudors? I mean, they go
5: on and on, don't they?
4: That is rather my view. And I did feel that with Wolf Hall, that there was a slight problem. I mean, she creates a wonderful universe of Thomas Cromwell. I mean, from my point of view, it it's like the book slightly ran out of legs towards the end. You got a wonderful universe, but you kind of felt that a lot of the action was taking place somewhere else between um, Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon.
5: Well, Wolf Hall isn't visited during the book, is it? He's just off to Wolf Hall at the end of it.
4: Yes, I know. That's one of the sort of things you find at the end, that at 650 pages you're only a third of the way through because there's two volumes to come and it is a kind of thought of, (gasps) right, well, I'm not sure if I'm up for the whole ride or not.
8: But I think this is why I found it um, so much more than just a historical novel, because it's not just a retelling of the Tudor history that we all know, that we all learn when we were sort of nine or ten. It's about being inside the mind of this one man, and a man who is cast in all the histories as a total villain, but Mantel manages to make him, if not sympathetic, then at least empathetic, and we can absolutely understand why he made every decision. It's all very incremental, and, you know, you move. he moves up and up and up, and you, you follow him and you believe him and you believe in him. And, and that's why I think the whole, the whole label of a Tudor novel, a historical novel, is, um, it's too meagre for it, I think. It, it, there's so much more going on in this book and that's you know, why I think it was such a worthy winner.
2: Claire Armitstead, Sarah Crown and John Crace. And you can hear a longer version of that discussion at guardian.co.uk slash books. Chris Evans has just written the first volume of his autobiography, called It's Not What You Think. It covers the period in the 1990s when he presented BBC Radio 1's breakfast show with 7.5 million listeners. That's even more than Guardian Daily. In a couple of months' time, Evans takes over BBC Radio 2's breakfast slot from Terry Wogan, who's been doing the job on and off for 27 years. Evans told G2's Stuart Jeffries he'd come full circle.
9: I think it's back to where I started. To be honest, you right. know, I mean, the, all the mayhem that we caused in the '90s, you know, and all, all that stuff, you know, that, that sort of wasn't really who I was. I was taken away with the times, and I was having all this. I was living a rock star's lifestyle, you know, hanging out with the with the rock stars, hanging out with all the famous people, had more money than I'd ever dreamt of, you know, and it was party time. And you know, when you go to parties, you do strange things, especially if they last for a while, and uh, mine lasted for. I don't know, anything between five and ten years, depending on how you look at it, you know. I tell you what I get when re- reading your biography you, you, is that uh, you know you've you done a lot of things that, that were bad and wrong and, and all of that, and I don't get the sense that you know you necessarily you, you know you're, you fess up to everything. You fess up to doing things that are wrong, but you don't seem to have to regret anything really. No, I don't think I do regret anything. I mean, every day I think about what if, what if, what if, you know. When I was at the height of um, my powers as a media owner. Uh, when I had loads and loads of money you know, when I had uh, a hugely successful television show um, yeah, I think you know, if, if I'd have turned left instead of right, then I could have I could, how, you know, how big could it have all been, you know how many, how many things could we have done, could we have made movies, you know um, could we have gone to gone on to our more radio stations could I have been healthier you know, could I have bought all the cars that I wanted could I have um, I don't know, Could could I have done more and the answer is yes I definitely could have done more but that's just not the way it it didn't happen that way you know so I've got to take all that experience and all that lost opportunity and I've got to make up for it now that's what I've got to do um you know, and you look at other people that, that haven't done that, you know, Jamie Oliver's a, a great example, you know, Jamie's, I mean, Jamie's, he's had his hiccups, but not really, you know, they're, they're more, they're more sort of made up by the press than, and, I mean, I, he's, had, he, he's had his dilemmas, I know he has, in which way to, to go next, you know, but he's done pretty well out of all of it, and there's a guy who's, who's not, who, who started off, you know, spotted in the background of a TV show, you know, came to the came in front of the camera, got his own signature show, and has absolutely made the most of everything, uh, brilliantly. You know, and I didn't do that, and I could have done that. Well, I couldn't do that, because I didn't. But, but you know, in retrospect, you think, well, maybe I could have done that. But I couldn't, because my head was in the wrong place. So when we did the first ever TFI Friday, we went to do, to, not, the, not the pilot, but the actual first ever real show. We went to Riverside Studios, and we hired a house over the road, because we didn't have enough dressing rooms. So we put the bands in a house over the road, and I honestly thought, honestly, I mean, how naive is this? And I wasn't, you know, I've been in the business a while then. And I, I honestly thought that all the bands were going to turn up with bottles of Jack Daniels and cans of tenants. And, and I couldn't believe it because the first band I actually saw, I won't name the name, but the lead singer had curlers in his hair <laughs> and he was blow drying his hair and it was like one o'clock. I thought, I thought we were going to get on it. I thought this is the deal, you know, um, that's how sort of illusory I was. Are you still, a, you know, extraordinarily rich? I'm extraordinarily rich. I mean, I'm a lot less rich than I used to be. Right. But I'll be all right, I should imagine. Yeah, no, but I've lost, I mean, I've lost millions, but all my own fault.
2: Chris Evans talking to Stuart Jeffries. Andy Duckworth and Tim Maybe with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily, along with Phil Maynard in Manchester. I'm John Dennis. Thanks for listening.